Good morning, everyone. And uh, thank you. Thank you for worshiping this morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you for celebrating together with God's people. Thank you for all of you who have been serving. I don't know if you all realize this, but easily two hours or more before this meeting ever starts, people are scurrying around the building, getting things ready, uh, rehearsing music, getting the facilities ready and everything. People are now serving in children's ministry. Thank you. Thank you for making the church function so well the way it does because of your, your effort. We're going to take some time in God's Word this morning, and we're in Mark chapter 9, so if you'd like to get yourself there, let me introduce the text, and then we'll read the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 9 together. I'd like it. Uh, Stephanie, thank you for sharing that story. You, your story is actually the introduction to the sermon, if we could borrow that and fit that right in, uh, because... Here is the opening line on my notes. It is amazing all that God has done to help us know him and believe in him. It is really, truly amazing to realize and think about all that God has done in order to encourage you and me to know him and to believe in him. I would encourage you to read your Bibles through that lens, everything that has taken place, everything that the scriptures record are designed to help you and me know who God is and to believe in him. All the history, all the events, the prophets, the kings, the, the leaders, the neighboring nations, and of course, the coming of God's son, the miracles that he did, the teachings that he spoke, and ultimately his death and his resurrection, all of it. Every word in the book in front of you, all designed with this end in mind, that you would know who God is, that you would believe in him, that you would trust him. It's all designed with that in mind. It's God's agenda. It's why he wrote the Bible. That's why the book of Mark exists as well. And we set off in our study in the book through the gospel according to Mark with a couple questions to answer who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him. We've been looking at details of this along the way and we've come to realize in the last couple weeks that some things about following Jesus and some things about Jesus are hard to believe, not easy to believe. Psychologists actually call this motivated reasoning Peter Ditto, PhD at uh, UC Irvine, who studies this kind of thing, said it this way, people are capable of being thoughtful and rational, but our wishes, our hopes, our fears, and motivations often tip the scales to make us more likely to accept something as true if it supports what we want to believe. In other words, what he's saying is we've got things going on inside of our hearts that sort of tip the scale, incline us to believe something or not believe something, not necessarily just based on the facts or what we've been taught, but based on our fears and our motivations and our desires and so forth. There's things in our hearts that tend to cause us to interpret truth or falsehood based on our own hearts and our own 
desires. He goes on to say it takes more information to make you believe something you don't want to believe than something you do. In other words, it takes extra effort. If there's a truth that you find yourself not wanting to believe, he's saying it takes more effort, more information, more data to help you come to terms and believe that. Well, the case in point is as we're studying through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus recently declared the Messiah clarifies something about himself and about us, that as the Messiah, he must suffer and die. And for you and me to follow Jesus, the calling is to deny ourselves and take up our cross as we follow him. Neither of these things set well with the disciples. Neither of these things set well with us. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself. Get rid of yourself. Get yourself out of the way. Forget yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Hard to believe. Hard to believe because we don't want to believe it, which is one reason why the prosperity gospel takes hold so easily in so much of the world, because it's precisely what we want to hear. Everything will be great. Everything will be fine. Just trust God and he will give you everything that you want and there will be no trouble in your way. And yet here comes Jesus making a statement that is hard to believe. It takes more information to help you believe something that you don't want to, which brings us to the transfiguration. The reason why the transfiguration took place, an event where Jesus shows three of his disciples his glory designed to help you and me believe something that is hard to believe. Let's read the text together. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, we'll read 13 verses together. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, 
and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Transfiguration is one of the major events in the life and ministry of Jesus. Most Christians know about the transfiguration. Most of you have read about it. Maybe it was a Sunday school lesson if you grew up in children's ministry. But why did it happen? Why did it take place? And what are we supposed to learn from it? Here's the simple statement. Jesus shows us his glory so we'll have strength to follow him. Sometimes we need more information to help us believe something that's hard to believe. Let me break it down with a few simple points. First one, the change. The actual change that took place with Jesus, the, what we know is the transfiguration. Here's some details leading up to it. After six days is the phrase that we read in verse, in verse 2, linking it. So the scholars tell us, most likely linking this to verse 1. This is most likely the event that was being referred to by saying some of you, as he's talking to his disciples, there are some of you that are going to not die until you've seen the kingdom come in its power. So Peter, James, and John are selected, and Jesus takes these three men up to the top of a mountain. Now, these three men have a special place in the ministry of Jesus. They're the only three of the disciples that Jesus sort of nicknamed, gave them different names. And when Jesus went into the girl's bedroom who had died to raise her from the dead, it was just these three that Jesus invited in to that special event. And now they're being singled out again with Jesus to witness his transfiguration on the top of this mountain. Turns out these three will hold significant leadership roles in the church. And so Jesus separates them out. There's sort of this, this, this uh, closest of his friends to invest in in unique ways, preparing them to take on unique leadership roles. And we see, and we can just take note of this, there is kind of what's known as the mustard seed principle of the kingdom of God. Jesus invests in just a few with the idea that these few are going to be used by him to tell many. We know about this because a few were told. And it's good to keep in mind that this is true for you and for me. Now, you know, if you and I were running the show, we'd say, Jesus, you're going to show your glory on top of a mountain. Let's get as much of the world as possible to see this take place. Let's publicize this. Let's get it on TV. Let's put it on Instagram. Let's make sure everybody can see as many people as possible. And yet Jesus says, just three. I'm going to take three guys with me, and they are going to witness this. Later, we read in one of Peter's epistles, 2 Peter chapter 1, he recounts this. And so Peter takes his experience on this mountaintop and he communicates it to all of us. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him 
on the holy mountain. Keep that in mind. When God works in your life, he's working in your life so that you can be used in the lives of others. When he speaks to you, when he helps you, when he comforts you, the comfort that you receive. God wanted Stephanie to share that story with you so that you could be encouraged. She was comforted because somebody put forth effort and she saw God's hand at work helping her in a difficult situation, relatively small by comparison, and yet the Lord took note and paid attention. And then she shares that with us because the Lord sees your life and your situation. And you and I can take comfort from that as well. So we have this scene on top of the mountain, and Jesus was transfigured before them. Transfigured. If you saw the word in Greek, it's almost metamorphosis. Almost. It's that close. That's exactly what you think if you were to look at it, transliterated from Greek into English. He took on a whole new form. His appearance visibly was changed. As Jesus was standing there, and the three guys standing around him, with him, up there to pray, the appearance of Jesus changes. It says even his clothes were like dazzling white. White, white, whiter than white. Mark is trying to describe it and said it, they were so radiant, they were whiter than any white I've seen. They're whiter than any launderer, any cleaner could bleach out a piece of cloth. He's trying to tell us there was something supernatural taking place. It wasn't a natural white. It was a radiant, supernatural whiteness that was blinding, that stunned these guys as they were looking at Jesus. Something from the unseen, something from the supernatural, something from the hidden kingdom of God was being revealed into the natural world. The two dimensions were now visibly intersecting for a few moments, and the true majesty and glory of Jesus was getting exposed. Aspects of who Jesus is that was not physically visible to anybody prior to that in that moment like a veil was pulled back and the true glory of who Jesus is was made known made visible was being revealed it was an extreme moment of awe it was the first time you stepped up to the edge of the Grand Canyon and looked in and caught you, caught, took your breath away for that moment. It was, it was that multiplied. It was a moment these three guys will never forget. It was the ultimate sense of awe that these men felt in that moment as Jesus' glory was being revealed to them. Why did, these, why did Jesus want these three guys to see him in his glory? The context of where this took place was Jesus is saying, okay, you're beginning to recognize who I am, and now let me explain to you. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be ridiculed. I'm going to go to the cross. And that's not going to set well with you. 
That's not going to feel like the right thing that's going to happen. You're going to look at me and it's going to be hard for you to believe that what's happening is actually the right thing to be happening. I want you to get a picture of my glory and I want this to be in your mind so that when you see me on the cross, you don't forget this moment in my glory because the two must go together. I want to help you through my time of suffering to not lose sight of who I am. I also want your faith to grow so that when you are going through suffering, you won't forget this picture of my glory and it will strengthen you in your faith through those times of suffering. This is the glory for us to realize when we feel like we're in the midst of defeat. When we wonder if denying ourselves is really the right way to go. If it really is a good idea for us to lay down our lives for one another. If we really should follow the words of Jesus when he says, take up your cross. It doesn't always feel right. It doesn't always look right. Sometimes it's a hard thing to believe. Jesus says, I want you to have a picture of me in my glory to sustain you through those times. That's the change that took place. Secondly, let's look at the connection. Jesus is there and Elijah and Moses show up in a way that is connecting Jesus with all that God has been doing. It's like bringing in the whole story together, Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, all the plan of God, all the redemptive work that God has been doing from the very beginning, from the call of Abraham on through to the time Jesus shows up. God wants, Jesus wants you and I to know, one of these three guys to know that who Jesus is, is connected with all of what God is doing. Elijah and Moses both listed as significant precursors to Jesus. And so both these men appear there with the idea of pointing to Christ. The transfiguration of, of Jesus parallels in many ways Moses' encounter with God on the mountain when he went up to Mount Sinai and received the law. Moses was called onto the top of the mountain to meet with God. In Exodus chapter 24, while there were 70 elders come along, there were three men that were actually named that went with Moses up on the mountain. And now Jesus comes with three men actually named. After being with God, Moses' face shone by reflecting God's glory. Jesus' appearance was transfigured so much so that he himself was radiating the glory of God. With Moses, the cloud of God's glory covered the mountain. With Jesus, the cloud overshadowed all of them standing there. With Moses, a voice spoke from the cloud. With Jesus, a voice spoke from the cloud. And when they went down, when Moses went down, the people were afraid to come near Moses and couldn't look upon his face because of the, the reflection, the radiance on his face. And when Jesus came down from the mountain, it says the people were amazed when they saw Jesus when he came down from the mountain. 
So we're seeing a lot of connections here between Moses and Jesus, and Moses on the mountain, and Jesus on the mountain. But the point is not that Jesus is pointing to Moses. The point is that Moses is pointing to Jesus. That Moses existed to point to Jesus. Moses was the precursor. In Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moses existed to set up for Jesus. Moses is seen as the great deliverer who who led the people through the exodus, the exodus out of bondage into the promised land. It was all to point ahead to the true deliverer. Now, not in Mark, but actually in Luke, Luke gives a little bit more insight when it says that Jesus was talking with Moses and Elijah. Luke tells us what they were talking about. And in our English translation, most of them, it says they were talking about Jesus' departure. But that word right there is actually his exodus. They were talking together about Jesus' exodus. And again, it is just a way of using language to draw attention. That While Moses did what Moses did, it was all designed to help move us forward and to see the Christ and see Jesus for who he was and what he did. And now we're pointing from a great deliverer to the great deliverer as Jesus gives himself to set us free and bring us into the promised land. Moses is with Jesus. Elijah appears with Jesus. His name triggers an expectation for the Messiah. If you were to look at the last verses of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4, it reads this, Remember the law of my servant Moses and see I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Everybody's expectation who was reading their Bible and looking for the Messiah had an expectation and had Moses and Elijah in their sights. They were the reference points for looking for the Messiah coming. That's how the Old Testament closes and leaves everybody in Israel anticipating and looking for the coming Messiah. It's on their conversation down where Jesus explains to the disciples why Elijah and through the other Gospels, it sort of, he sort of exposes and explains that as was Elijah was there, and Elijah actually did come, and he clarifies that that was actually John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is sort of the Elijah that came to make way for the Savior to come. So the prophecy is fulfilled, and Jesus is there taking his two precursors, the two people that God used to point to him, and there he stands in front of these three men. Peter couldn't keep his mouth shut, had to say something. It's just in him. He can't stop. It's coming. He couldn't stop himself from speaking. He had to say something. It's good that we're here, Lord. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Immediately after that, God speaks. The voice comes from above. 
And once the Father speaks out of the cloud, the two are gone, and Jesus alone is there. So lest Peter's proposal be misunderstood, it's interesting Peter is the one that just declared him the Messiah, and now he talks to Jesus, and he's rabbi, teacher. And unless his idea sort of puts Moses and Elijah and Jesus on the same level. God speaks and all of a sudden the whole appearance changes and Moses and Elijah are gone and Jesus is left standing there. What does God want for us here? What's, that? What's the application? What are we supposed to grab here? Oh, realize that Jesus is the center of all that God is doing. Realize that Christ is at the center of all God has done. All the history, the whole Bible, everything of redemptive history, it all points in one direction. It is all about Christ. Christ is what God is doing to save the world. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than all the prophets. Moses and the prophets only pointed to him, to direct our attention to him. Our focus is meant to land on Christ. He's the one who came to rescue us. Everything is trying to drive this point home so that in the days to come, in the future from this moment, in spite of the appearance of defeat, in spite of how you're going to feel when you see Jesus be arrested and ridiculed in the mock trial and charged and guilty and hung on the cross and laid in a grave, in spite of all those events that are just going to look like a failure and a defeat and all is lost, I want you to know, look at his glory and see it's all for good. He still is the one. He's the glory of the Father, the radiance of God to the world. We come to the third point, which is the communication. Where God speaks, the whole account of the transfiguration is capped off with God speaking from heaven. The cloud overshadowed them. A voice comes out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Can you imagine being in the ultimate moment of awe of your entire existence? You are stunned at the glorious radiance of divine, of divinity right in front of you. And here comes the voice, this is my son, my beloved son. Listen to him. It's a similar situation to Jesus' baptism, but there's a contrast between the two. At the baptism, same voice, God speaking from the skies, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. First person, God speaking to Jesus about Jesus. But here we find God speaking not to Jesus, but to the three men standing there, to Peter, James, and John, and to you and to me who receive the word from those witnesses. This is my beloved son. Listen to him, these words are for our benefit. They're for our instruction. The voice from heaven becomes the third witness to who Christ is. Now the law says 
that by two or three witnesses, a thing will be established. And so God speaks as the third witness. There is Elijah and there is Moses. And now a voice from heaven, the third witness comes to affirm who Jesus is. Three witnesses to Jesus, four, three witnesses for Jesus. Moses, Elijah, God, speak as witnesses to Peter, James, and John, who become three witnesses to speak to us. This is why, this is why you and I believe the Bible because we're reading from first-hand witnesses. The thing is established because Peter, James, and John were there, and they wrote it down, and they wanted to communicate to you and to me. This is what we saw. We heard the voice. We saw His majesty with our own eyes. See what lengths God has gone to to provide us enough information to believe. See what God has done throughout history. Notice to what lengths God will go to make sure you and I have sufficient evidence to believe the word of the apostolic teaching here. And the word is, this is Jesus. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen, listen to what exactly? Well, of course, Listen to everything that Jesus taught, every commandment, every teaching that came out of his mouth. Listen to everything that he has to say. But we, we have this immediate context of saying, listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus when he tells you to deny yourself and take up your cross. Listen to Jesus when he tells you something that's hard to believe. Oh, lay down your life for others. Give up yourself to serve others. Give up of yourself for the good of others. Set aside your own good in order to lay your life down for others. Is that not a hard thing to believe? Do we not need more evidence in order to believe that statement? And here it is, the transfiguration, giving us plenty of evidence. Three witnesses to three witnesses to affirm a thing. Why? Well, because when you get a phone call to say, can you serve in children's ministry, or would you bring a meal to so-and-so because they just had a baby, and you're thinking, well, wait a minute. I'm kind of busy. I got my own stuff going on. When your neighbor is in need or your coworker is falling on hard times, and you are prompted to go and serve and help, but it costs you. When there's opportunity to serve someone else, but it's costly to you. And you say, why should I give up of what I have, or my own time, or my own ease, or my own comfort, in order that they might have something? You could remember the revelation of the glory of Christ on top of that mountain. You could remember three witnesses declaring the same thing to three witnesses who have communicated to you and to me, this really happened. It happened to strengthen your faith. It happened in order to help you and me in those times where it's hard to deny yourself and lay down your life. What do we need to see in those moments? How hard it is? No, we need to see how glorious he is. That's what helps our faith and helps us in those times.
when our hopes of being happy cause us to do all we can to save our lives, all we can to make sure we're pleasing ourselves. Those are our wishes and our desires. And if I don't take care of me, who will? Yeah, not you, not anybody else. So I need to save my life. And Jesus tells us something that's hard to believe. If you try and save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. It will be saved. Our desire for our own happiness, our fears of being taken advantage of, these are hard desires that influence our decision-making about what is right and what is wrong and what is fitting and what is appropriate because we have motivated reasoning that alters the facts and Jesus gives us the facts. You lose your life, you find it. You save your life, you lose it. But sometimes we need more. We need more information to make good decisions, which is why Jesus revealed his glory. So self-sacrifice and suffering are never in vain for someone who follows Jesus. Self-sacrifice and suffering are never in vain for someone who follows Jesus. Let's keep on with some application as I close here. Clearly, first and foremost, what's meant to happen as we read this account about the transfiguration is that your faith in who Jesus is and your faith to follow him is meant to be strengthened by seeing Christ in his glory. But there's more going on. There's more for us in this. Not only seeing him in his glory, but the New Testament instructs us that we share in his glory. We have some stake in his glory because he is glorious and we're brought in Christ. We gain, we get a glimpse of the future glory that awaits us. Colossians 3 if you then have been raised with Christ, well, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And hear this, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. A little foretaste on that mountaintop of where you and I are heading same glory we get to share in it we get to be brought into it that's where we're heading that's what sustains us through today through tomorrow through next week through next month because we know this is where we are heading if you're in christ in other words the glory revealed in jesus directs our hearts about what we seek after he's saying look seek after things that are above Think on things that are above. Look up. Look above. Look to that mountaintop. Look to the glory. Don't get stuck down in the weeds of this earth and lose sight of the glory that awaits us on that day. We're also brought into a 
transforming work of the Spirit now. There's a glory that awaits us in the future, but something is taking place in our hearts and in our lives day by day. Romans 12, 1 and 2, familiar verses to many of you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed. Same word, transfiguration, metamorphosis. You be changed. Be changed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You understand as we renew our minds with God's truth that that act, that function, the work of the Spirit in and through the Word of God renewing our minds transforms us. It changes us. We become new people in that process. The Spirit of God is at work in and through your study of the Scripture, your application of the Scripture, the time you spend with God in His Word. Your mind is being renewed and your personhood is being transformed. You are being shaped into the image of Christ. One more application. We're also brought into a greater boldness as we see Jesus in his glory. The verses 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is a chapter that is about the ministry of reconciliation that you and I have been called into. Paul is writing this and saying, who's sufficient to be a part of this thing? I can't believe we get to be a part of God's reconciliation process in the world, and yet that's precisely what we're called to. And in this chapter, in that context of being used by God to bring reconciliation to others, this is where he says, we're changed by beholding the glory of Christ. And he writes, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. So here's the application. In our usefulness to spread the gospel and the good news to others, in the way God uses us in this ministry of reconciliation, you and I talking with neighbors, coworkers, friends, extended family who don't know the Lord. This work of the Spirit is changing us within into this glory, and with that is giving us greater and greater boldness. It's a major component of this concept of deny yourself. What are the moments as Christians where we want to save ourselves is it not when the Spirit prompts you to tell somebody else about Jesus? Is that not the epitome of saving yourself, those moments right there? What am I going to do? Am I going to open my mouth or am I not? Am I going to save my life or am I going to lose it? And everything within us says, if I open my mouth, I'm losing it. 
I will die right here. I will just die. If I open my mouth, they will embarrass me. I won't say the right thing. This will go terrible. I, I, I have it all laid out in my mind. I think I better save my life. And Jesus says, oh, 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 if you save your life, you will lose it. But if you lay down your life, you will find it. Because you and I, friends, brothers, sisters, he has incorporated you and me into the ministry of reconciliation. If you want to know the reality of sort of finding your life, be used of God to lead someone else to know Christ. transfiguration of Jesus affects our faith. It affects what we seek after. Can I just ask you, just do a little run through your past week. What are you seeking after? What are you investing yourself in? What are you spending your time with? Oh, it's, it's scary to read the statistics of how much time we spend on our smartphones. Perusing pictures and cliches and things on Instagram and Facebook, hours a day. Transfiguration is meant to influence us on how we invest ourselves, what we're seeking after. It also affects our personal lives. Back to Romans 12:1. our holiness, our desire to please the Lord, what helps us with this? It's the transfiguration. It's seeing Jesus in his glory. It's having that moment of awe and, and, and realizing, oh, three witnesses to three witnesses declared this is who Jesus is. That changes us. That motivates us. That causes our hearts to desire to walk in holiness, to walk in ways that please the Lord. And it affects our willingness to be used of God to reconcile others to him. This is where boldness comes from. How am I going to get courage? How am I going to get boldness? Put yourself on that mountain. Look at Christ reveal his glory. You have to cover your eyes. His clothes are so white, so bright, so much radiance, so much glory. That moves us. I have the worship team come on up. It is amazing to what great lengths God will go to help you and me believe things that are hard to believe. Things that at first blush we don't want to believe, but when we see his glory, these things become the things we desire most. Let's stand together. Father, take these words and as you do by your spirit and as cannot be done except by your spirit, sow them into our hearts. We pray, Lord, that we would join in with these witnesses who beheld your majesty, who were there, who heard the voice. 
that we would find ourselves believing their testimony that the thing has been established and it is true. And so we believe it. And so we know you are glorious. And use that glory to sustain each one who's hearing my voice right now. Through the difficulties and the trials and the sufferings, Lord, let the glory of our Savior sustain us through those so that you'll be honored, so that we would be saved and know you. In Jesus' name, amen.